The scripture reference for today we have is James 2, 14 through 26. And join with me as we read. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I, sh I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons, demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in that same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. Join me in prayer. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to gather together. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to share your word. I just pray that we have receptive hearts and that you give us the ability through your Holy Spirit and through hearing your word, that understanding that we need to have to, to apply this to our lives and to implement it throughout, throughout our, our dealings with other people. Father, we love you and we praise you, but we want to love you and we want to know how to praise you more. Help us to understand what you would have us to understand. Thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you here today. My name is Scott Stevens and I'm the counseling pastor here at the church. And for those of you who are visiting with us today, uh, I want to welcome you. This is a great time to be celebrating. Marty Price, our senior pastor, is taking some well-deserved vacation time with his family. Today, we're on our second week, or in our second week, of a five-week study of the book of James. Now, last week, we discussed that the book of James is considered wisdom literature. Some people refer to it as the New Testament book of Proverbs. It provides us with wonderful guidance from God which we can apply to the circumstances in our lives that we're confronted with. Now, in this book, James teaches us in a way that shows how to apply practical lessons to the situations that we're confronted with during our life. He shows us the importance and relevance of faith as we make decisions and then carry out these decisions throughout our lifetime. Today's sermon is about the need that we have as Christians 
to live in an authentic Christian faith. Now, faith is a primary doctrine in the Christian faith. Now, a primary doctrine is one in which you biblically have to believe to become a Christian or to be considered a Christian. Now, as Christians, we know that by faith we are saved. We live our lives trusting in God through our faith, and it's through our faith that we call on the Lord to enable us to live a life that is glorifying to him. And it's through this faith that we trust that God will guide us and direct us as we attempt to live for him. Hebrews 1.11 helps us to understand what faith is. And this verse tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it's the conviction of things not seen. Now, things hoped for is a general term that focuses on hope. It's not focusing on a thing or an object One author writes that faith is the act of commitment on the part of the believer, whereas hope is a state of mind which we possess. The conviction of things not seen is also an interesting phrase. Things not seen describes all that is beyond our normal knowledge and beyond our powers of comprehension. So take, for example, that the world in which we live was created by the word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, how this was done is beyond our normal ability to comprehend. But it's by faith that we're able to believe that this is true. Another verse, Romans 5, 1 and 2, tells us that it's by faith in Jesus, all that he has done and by who he is, that we've been justified and we have peace with God. We gained access to God's grace through the faith that we have in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Again, it's by faith that we know that this is true. Author uh, Warren Wearsby gives us a clear explanation about the nature of saving faith. He writes, faith is not some kind of nebulous feeling that we work up. Faith is the confidence that God's word is true and the conviction that action upon his word will bring his blessings. John Piper, another author, goes on to explain that faith is trusting all that God promises that he will, uh, trusting that all that God promises will be given to us in Jesus Christ. Each of these authors place a foundation of all true faith on the promises that God makes to us in his word. The belief that scripture is true and that we can believe the promises God makes in his word is a basis for our faith. 
when James began a, begins addressing faith in his writings, he repre, uh, references Abraham as a person that we should take notice of. In verse 21, he writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled that saying, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Wouldn't it be great if we were all called a friend of God because of our faith? But for us to truly understand what true faith is, I think it's important to understand the faith of Abraham. And to understand Abraham, we'll be going to the Scripture. First, we'll go to the New Testament. In Romans 4, 3, Paul talks about Abraham's faith, stating the same thing that James stated. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then a few verses down in Romans 4, 9, it tells us a little bit more. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, talks about the level of, of faith that Abraham has for we say it was counted to Abraham as righteousness so he had such great faith that God looked upon him and said Abraham is righteous in his dealings Abraham was a faith or was a man who not only believed in God but he also believed God he believed what God told him So Abraham's faith was considered a genuine faith because he obeyed God by faith. Now, many of us know the story of Abraham, and I don't think we really consider, though, the extent in which Abraham believed God and exercised his faith in God. So we go back into Genesis. We read the story about Abraham's faith there. Beginning in chapter 12, we're told that Abram, which was his name at the time, was told to take a journey. God told him that he would bless him and make his name great and that he would be made into a great nation. So Abraham, at the age of 75, again, we'll reference him as Abram at this point. So Abram, at the age of 75, out of obedience to God, packed all of his possessions and left Haran and went to Shechem in Canaan, just because God told him to do it. Now, this wasn't an easy trip for he and his family. He did not know where God was taking him. The distance that he walked was about 426 miles. Now, could you imagine getting up and walking to the beach and walking back from the beach with your family? Once there, God appeared to Abram again and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, here he is in Canaan. He's walked 426 miles, and God comes to him and says, to you and your offspring, offspring, I'll give you this land. I would have thought, great, I'm here. This is it. Now, God had him travel some more. God sent Abram from Canaan to Egypt at that point. This was another walk of 314 miles. As we read the story, it progresses in chapter 13. We read that Abram was in Egypt for a while, 
And then he returned to Canaan, which was another trip where he and his family walked about 230 miles. Now, this journey that God and Abram and his family, that God had Abram and his family on before he settled in the land promised him he traveled about a thousand miles, walking, traveling with his family. Abraham, in his faith, accepted a God promised inheritance that he could not see, but leaving a reality, a comfort, a life that he could see. So he left something that he couldn't see, or he left something that he could see for something that he could not see. Later in Genesis 15, we read that the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. I, your reward shall be very great. Verse 2 is very re- revealing about what Abram was thinking. Abram said at that time, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Then in verse 5, he, God tells Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And here we read, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, as we turn to Genesis chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old. Now, think about this. He started this journey when he was 75. Now, at 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Now, the use of the term sojourning is pretty interesting here. It implies that Abraham at this stage still is a stranger in the land because that's what a sojourner is, a stranger in a foreign land. But verse 15 tells us, Uh, God tells Abraham in verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Think about the faith 
that you would have to have in that circumstance. So in chapter 18, verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then in verse 21, we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now, can you imagine the faith that it took for Abraham to continue to trust in what God told him? But that's not the end of the story. In Genesis 22, we read that God tested Abraham Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham came to the place which God directed him, and he bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. Abraham then raised his knife to sacrifice his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said to him, Not to kill Isaac. Then he said, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Are you beginning to see why Abraham was considered a man of faith? He walked over a thousand miles in many different directions not really having clear guidance as to where he'll settle. He knew that God would tell him, though, where to settle when it was time. He was told that he would be a father of many people, yet for many years he didn't have a child. In his old age, he was told that his, his older wife would conceive a son. And even though he saw no evidence that he would have a child, he trusted what God promised him. When his son was born and lived with Abraham and Sarah, he was probably 11 or 12 years old. So again, we're talking about a period of time that Abraham had, beginning his journey to when he was probably 112 years old. Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice him. Abraham walked in faith to the point of the sacrifice all the way realizing that God would provide a way for him to keep his promise. God would keep his promise to Abraham. He trusted in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Can any of us say that we could display that amount of trust and faith in what God asks of us today? Faith that walks away from what we see to something that is unseen. All because God asks us to do it. Abraham's faith and trust in his word was unwavering. Now, some people might say that, that Abraham's faith did waver because of some of the interactions he had with kings and asking that Sarah be considered his sister rather than his wife. But Romans 4, 20 and 21 tells us that his faith was unwavering, that he did not waver. 
You know, sometimes I think my, my faith is strong. Most times, though, I let the circumstances that I see in front of me distract me from God's promises for me. James had a lot to say about the faith that Abraham had and what faith we're to have. James saw in the church at that time when he was writing this letter that people didn't understand what saving faith is. And I would argue that that many of us in this culture today don't understand what saving faith is too. So as we refer back to the verse, James discusses the relationship between faith and works. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James addresses the relationship that we have or the relationship that there is between faith and works, emphasizing the importance of putting one's faith into action. In this verse, he shows us that people exercise different kinds of faith. Not all faith can be considered a saving faith. As a matter of fact, in the passage, James discusses three types of faith. Two types that are considered a wrong faith and one that's considered a saving faith. So the first type of faith that James discusses in in this passage is a faith that is dead. Now, what is a faith that is dead? Let's reference another verse uh, for some context to this. In Matthew 7.21, we read a warning from Jesus that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the ones who actually follow the will of the Father that will become his children. People with a dead faith are people who claim that they have a saving faith, but do not possess salvation. Author Warren Wearsby comments that these are people who substitute words for deeds. They know what the scripture says. They know how to pray, but their walk does not measure up to their talk. James discusses this in this passage. Here he describes a brother or sister, someone in the church who is poorly clothed and is hungry. And a person who says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. He does not do anything to meet their needs. That's what what James is describing here, this person that has words but not deeds. James comments that what James comments what good is what's good is <laughs> what good is that? He goes on to explain faith by itself without works is dead. Truth saving faith can never be by itself. And we have to remember that. Saving faith is always followed or supplemented by good works. If we have true faith, if it's seen through our actions, it will be saving faith. 
As followers, uh, followers of Christ, we have an obligation to help meet the needs of people no matter who they are. And that's one of the reasons why we take a benevolence offer, offering here at the church on the first Sunday of every month. And this is why we also have a counseling ministry that can reach people within the church or outside into the community. By doing this, we put our action or put action behind our claims that we care for other people. Another good reference is John three seventeen and 18. It tells us that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Those who have dead faith, a uh, dead faith, are not saved. They know the scriptures, they know the doctrines of salvation, but they have never submitted themselves to God and never trusted in God for their salvation. They know the words, but all that they have is an intellectual belief. I run across this in counseling all the time. People who believe that they are followers of Jesus Christ because they've got this knowledge in their head. They've been brought up in the church. They've been told all of the things that they need to know about the doctrine and about how to be saved. But they've not translated that into a heart knowledge of God to where they're living out their faith on a day-to-day -day basis. I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is to talk with someone who claims, I belong to Christ. Yes, I'm a believer. And yet, they have no knowledge of what really belonging to Christ means. It's not head knowledge. It's a knowledge that lives for Christ with the heart. Those who have a dead faith are not saved. They know the doctrines of salvation like we've, uh, like we've talked about, but they've never submitted themselves to God and trusted Christ for their salvation. These people have a false sense of confidence in their eternal life. That's, when, that's why God said, those that say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, I've never known you. Because their faith and knowledge is all intellect and no heart, they do not possess a saving faith in God and the renewed life. It's only through a relationship that they have with Jesus Christ that they can be saved. Now, we read about a second type of faith in verse 19. You it says here, you believe that God is one, you do well. But listen to this, even the, the demons believe and shudder. Here James is still admonishing the person who has a dead faith because he claims that he is justified because his belief in God. Intellectually, he tells everybody about his belief in God, but there is no action behind his faith. Remember, he only believes in Jesus in his mind, not in his heart. And James states that this person's belief and the faith 
uh, uh, this person's belief and faith is the equivalent of a demon. The second type of wrong faith is demonic faith. And we read in Scripture that demons believe in the existence of God. They also believe in the deity of Christ. Mark 3 clearly explains that whenever demons met Jesus during his earthly ministry, they acknowledged that he was the Son of God. Luke 8.31 shows that they know that there is a place of punishment. Mark 5, 1-13 shows that the demons acknowledge Jesus as their judge and they submit to his commands. Wearsby comments that the man who has a dead faith is only affected by his intellect. In comparison, the demons show emotion. They acknowledge and tremble at the thought of Jesus. James shows us that these two types of faith, dead faith and demonic faith, lead to death. Dead faith only affects the intellect. Demonic faith affects the mind and the emotions. But James continues this admonishment, uh, his admonishment of this man by stating, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He then makes his case by talking about Abraham once again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. There is a faith, though, that leads to salvation. So this third type of faith is a saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that is real. Saving faith is a result of a changed life through Jesus Christ. James 1.21 talks about the change that we have when we are in Christ. We talked about this a little last week. As Christians, we are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the saving faith, the action that we have there is we're putting off that old life and we're taking on the new life that the word promises that we will have through our faith in Jesus Christ, through the help of the Holy Spirit. So when we accept Jesus as our Savior and he begins to work in our lives, we receive our spiritual rebirth. We then begin our growth through the study of God's Word. Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Saving faith, faith that is dynamic, faith that we want to implement in our lives. That faith comes through God's word and through the help of the Holy Spirit. It involves the whole person, not just the mind or the emotions. But if faith requires action to complement it, 
and that action requires willpower, then true saving faith is a result of the whole person responding in trust and love to God's calling. The mind understands the truth. The heart desires the truth. And the will acts upon the truth. So true saving faith results in action that is glorifying to God. And once again, in our reference today, James James describes the actions that describe both Abraham and then we add a new character here, Rahab. Their faith, speaking of Abraham, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that God says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab was a woman in Jericho who hid the men Joshua sent to scout the land. She saved them from the ruler who sought to kill them and Rahab hid them in her home and then let them down out of the window over the wall in order to save them. Both Abraham and Rahab practice a saving faith in God that caused them to act. That action was based on what they believed about God. when they were considering this, they didn't have to intellectually think through all of the ramifications of what they were being asked to do. They didn't let the emotions that were in play determine whether or not they would be obedient. They acted in faith because they believed God and his word. So we as believers are to put actions behind our faith. And as Christians, we believe that through faith, Christ is our only way to salvation. And as a result of the salvation that Christ provides for us, we are to put our faith or put work to our faith in order to show others that we belong to him. One way that we can act our faith or put action to our faith is to love one another. John 13, 34, and 35 tells us that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. True faith is demonstrated through actions and deeds. And those actions and deeds are ones that bring glory to God in all ways. Mere verbal profession of faith without corresponding actions is inadequate and ineffective. But James concludes this passage by comparing faith without works to a body without a spirit, declaring that just as a body without a spirit is lifeless, faith without works is dead and ineffectual. James emphasizes 
that true faith is not merely intellectual belief or verbal affirmation. Faith is demonstrated through tangible actions that align with one's professed beliefs. Through faith, we believe and love God, and we share that love of God with other people. Works or deeds are seen as the outward expression of the faith that we have and that we live on a day-to-day basis. And it's an essential component of living an active relationship with God. Every day we're, we're confronted with people who don't have a saving faith. It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to help them to understand that that true faith that will have a relationship, an eternal relationship with God through the Savior is one that they can have, but it's not one that is mere intellectual faith. It's not one that is pure emotional faith. It is one that is faith that is given to us through the, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And we have that responsibility to help them to understand that there is a different way and that the faith that they're living is not a true faith. We have to be careful. We have to develop relationships. We have to help them to understand that we love and that we care for them. And we pray for them. We continue to act in their lives in a way, helping them to meet the needs that they have. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will work in their lives to give them that understanding that they need to have. But as we do this, we're able to to love them and to show them that the only true way to have faith is through a heart relationship, a love, a lordship relationship with Jesus Christ. And that will be shown through the actions that they have. That faith that they have in Jesus Christ will result in the actions that show love for other people. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we love you and we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to delve into your word. God, I pray that through the faith that you help us to have through your word and through your Holy Spirit that that we are able to to impact the lives of other people I pray that we walk every day knowing that your promises in your word are true and that we can live relying on that word knowing that we can trust you that we should not be anxious for anything that if we love you First and foremost, in in all ways, through every part of our body, that you will guide us and direct us. And that all the things that we go through in life, these things will be for our good and for your glory. And Father, we know that we can trust that your will is what's best for us. No matter what we see, no matter what we think, we know that what you would have us to do is the best path because you are sovereign, you are all-knowing, and you love us. And you're going to guide us in a way 
that gives us that ability to be able to trust more and more each day. So that's my prayer. Father, I pray that each one of us learns to rely on you with more trust and more faith every day, trusting in your word and then living out that trust and that faith in you in this world that you put us in. God, help us to impact others for your glory. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.